ora and welcome to episode 88 of the Stag Raw. Massive thanks to all those who got in touch after the last episode. It's been a massive response. It's been really cool talking with people around the uh, ideas of how we manage our game animal species within New Zealand. This episode, we sit back down with Cliff Harvey. We talk about his new book, Credo, and we go on a bit of journey about health and nutrition and what that all means and then we go into a little bit of philosophy and, and uh, psychology it's good fun we uh, yeah go for a walk in terms of how things interact with life and just you know a lot of a lot of ramblings it's a really cool episode and I hope you enjoy it and of course if you do like it hit us up again it's been great to hear from you let's go good everybody we're talking with Cliff Harvey again Legend, he's got a new book, uh, but we'll start off with how was your weekend, Cliff? What'd you do? <laughs> That's a good question. Uh, pretty, I think the weather was pretty poor here, so I think we're spending a lot of time just just inside chilling, getting getting chores done. I've been away a lot recently, so it's really the first weekend I've had um, to to chill in a few months. Where, where has uh, life been taking you, mate? Uh, a bunch of speaking. I was across in Perth uh, the, the weekend before last. I was speaking at the ACNAM conference, um, and obviously things yeah have just been pretty flat out with with the business and the the research and all the various things going on. Nice man. And you, you bring up Perth. Um, exciting times over in Perth. That they've sort of jumped on David Unwin's research from the UK, and it looks like that a sort of low carbohydrate approach to top two diabetes might take off in a little corner of Australia. Was there, was there much excitement around that or was it still pretty low key? It was fairly low key. I, I was, I was surprised a little bit because it's a pretty progressive place and it still felt though, like a lot of the information I was presenting was relatively novel to people. Um, but of course I was presenting mainly to, to, to GPs and to, to, you know, fairly orthodox practitioners, albeit those who are a little bit more open to complementary medicine. Uh, but yeah, I was presenting there on, on the, the keto diet for performance. Um, obviously not suggesting that the keto diet is the, the universal panacea for performance, but presenting on a couple of aspects of that and on um, the application of the keto diet for mental health. And so I guess that's at the more extreme end of, of low carb as well, but that, that was still fairly novel to people. And um, like I say, that surprised me a little bit because, you know, I do know that there is a bit of an underswell there of, of keto um, interest at least. Nice mate. And so what was the sort of clip notes from your keto and performance? Um, basically that, you know, my approach is obviously that one I call carb appropriate. So we really need to look at what the desired outcome is and what's going to meet that best. And then obviously there's a lot of nuances within that as far as the, the individual athlete, what they prefer to do, maybe what they're physiologically best suited to. And, um, you know, a large part of that is then determined by what the demands of their sport are, but more importantly, the demands of their training, you know, because a lot of athletes in the same sport might have pretty different approaches to training. You know, as I use the example of, you know, on the one hand, endurance athletes, some do a lot more miles, you know, and, and others have a more sort of intensity approach. 
Um, although most people are somewhere in the middle, but you do see extremes either way. And um, with strength and power athletes, you know, a lot of strength and power athletes have very different approaches to training. You know, we can see world champs who do a couple of hours training a week um, through to those who do, you know, 20 odd hours of training a week. So there's going to be a massive variation there in how much particularly carbohydrate different athletes are going to not just benefit from, but are going to be able to stick to and they're going to be able to, you know, have optimal adherence and compliance and therefore get the best results. Nice, mate. He spoke about the endurance athlete that, you know, doesn't do too much and is short and sharp and you've been working a little bit with uh, Luke Taylor from Hamilton and he came along to your little keto conference that you had in Auckland, mate. How do, you, how do you sort of feel about the, the um, weekend endurance athlete, but, you know, full-time absolute uh, biohacker? What, 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 do you, what, do you, what do you get out of that, that sort of person? <laughs> There's a lot. I mean, I think that really, I, I sort of made this point in the weekend, actually, uh, that the human animal is supposed to move, right? So we've evolved to, to be in action a lot of the time. And whether that's at sort of fairly low residual amounts of activity, you know, and then interspersed with higher um, intensity bouts and, you know, you know, sprinting, lifting, whatever, all those various things. We're basically an athletic animal. All animals are athletes, really. The only reason we've changed that is because we live a sedentary lifestyle. And so I think that anyone, irrespective of what level they're at, is an athlete. And we should look more at what what we need to do to optimize human performance or optimize the human condition and optimize human potential rather than have this arbitrary split between, you know, general population and athletes because people see them as being completely different. But the reality is if you're trying to be healthy, you're going to be eating well, you're going to be sleeping well, and you're going to be moving. In other words, you're pretty much an athlete, right? And so that's where I think um, that there's a big crossover now. And I think a lot of those people are out there doing the, the hacking work, you know, keto hacking, biohacking, whatever area they're in or whatever they want to call it. It's pretty interesting because they're basically meeting that, that middle ground and they're showing to some degree what it's like to, to optimize human potential in the human condition, um, you know, without necessarily thinking, well, I'm an athlete or I'm just gen pop because gen pop is, is a bullshit concept. Yeah. And I guess you don't want to be part of the uh, inverted commas general sedentary population that it's, Probably something to keep that arm's length away from, I guess. <laughs> yeah, and I think it's interesting now because we, we have, I, I think a lot of people are fairly split. You know, you, you do have not just that idea of athletes versus general population, but you also have people who are aspiring to, to more and they're not necessarily content to just look at, well, what do I need to do to survive? Which is where, you know, most of our guidelines come from. What do we need to do to survive? What do we need to do to be moderately healthy? Uh, what do we need to do to be normal? And they're looking past that into what do I need to do to actually optimize my condition? What do I need to do to thrive? On the other hand, you've got a lot of people who are, are almost turning away from aspiration. You know, they're saying, well, we just need to accept how we are and there shouldn't be any judgment placed on that. Now, I agree with the second part of that. We shouldn't be judging anyone based on where they're at now. And we need to get away from a lot of that judgmental conditioning that we have. But on the other hand, that shouldn't necessarily mean to people that they just sit there and say, well, I am who I am and that's it. Because while that's their choice, if they actually want to be healthier, there are certain things they'll need to do. And some of those things include, you know, moving, 
um, eating well and getting a bit more sleep. Yeah, absolutely. And sleep, sleep's a big one. And I guess that ties in quite highly with, with the mental health story. And I've, I've been listening to a few podcasts with Georgia Eid. Um, I don't know how much influence she made on, on that uh, talk you gave, but we, what, what were your cliff notes around mental health and going for that sort of higher fat, low carb approach? Yeah, I was very much speaking from the research. So I was unashamed about that. I basically said, look, I'm, I'm going to speak from the research and that's going to give us some insight into how potentially, you know, lower carb or keto approaches might help mental health in general. So I was really looking at the research and obviously most of that has been, well, in the early, early days it was epilepsy, but then a lot of the more recent research has been on neurodegenerative disorders, you know, the potential of say a keto diet or ketogenic supplements or exogenous ketones for Alzheimer's, Parkinson's, uh, Huntington's disease, amyotrophic lateral sclerosis, like all these neurodegenerative disorders. And then there's a little bit on the fringes that's starting to emerge on the, the role of a ketogenic diet for anxiety, depression, or bipolar, but that's fairly limited and most of it's limited to case study evidence. So I basically discussed the research that's happened thus far and then the reasons why we're seeing some of those positive benefits. You know, the, the effect of ketones on fueling the brain, um, particularly the effect of ketones on fueling the damaged brain, and then the raft of other effects from reducing um, overexcitation in the brain and that um, excitotoxicity through to the other relaxing effects of redressing the gamma to glutamate imbalance and providing more adenosine in the brain to help relax it. Um, and obviously the effects on neuroregeneration and inflammation and oxidation. So there's a, a lot of things going on there. But like I say, I sort of base the, the talk on what we can see in the research happening right now, the mechanisms by which that's probably occurring, and then the plausibility um, for mental health overall. But I guess the take-home is that, like a lot of the, the work that I've done, say, in the last couple of years, it's really helping people to unpick the story of the ketogenic diet, which they see as one big monolithic thing, versus ketones in the body. Mm. Because I, I think we've shifted the, the conversation and the research now enough that people are beginning to see that the ketogenic diet doesn't necessarily have to be this very restrictive thing that it used to be. You know, back in the treatment of epilepsy days when it was very, very, you know, almost no carbohydrate, um, fairly low protein, you know, very, very high levels of fat. We're starting to see now that people can achieve ketosis on, on far less restrictive diets. But more importantly, than that, people are starting to actually look at, well, what are, the, what are the biochemical effects of having these ketones in the blood and recognizing that it's a spectrum? You know, if, if you're on a paleo-style diet, you're still going to have a fair amount of ketones floating around. And are those going to give you benefit? Yeah, they are. So then it comes back to what I said first up really is outcomes-based nutrition. What are you trying to achieve? And do you need to be on a very extreme diet or do you, can you benefit from a less restrictive diet? Um, could you in fact benefit more from maybe adding some carbs back in or would you be best on a higher carb diet? You know, all of these things are questions that people can ask and you can only really answer them if you know where you want to end up. Yeah, I guess that uh, epilepsy model is also opening that up a bit where they've sort of looked at a certain subset that can get away with a more liberal diet and MCT supplementation. Um, and then, of course, the role of exogenous supplementation as well. And, you know, it's, it's all... The story's developing, I guess. Yeah, and that, um, that piece around, you know, using MCTs in particular to allow people to achieve the same types of 
ketone levels, but on less restrictive diets. That was huge. That was huge for opening up the whole conversation. And that happened back in the 70s. You know, that the first modified MCT studies were done. And that's only progressed since then. But, you know, you make a good point now about, again, it's the utility of ketones, right? And I think given that people can achieve ketosis and can have levels of ketones that are going to help, um, you know, very efficiently control seizures with far less restrictive diets, to, to me, that should mean that we really start to look at that as a first course intervention again. Whereas still in, in the treatment of epilepsy, the, the first course treatment is still medication, right? Because the, the diet originally up until the 70s was, was very difficult for people to adhere to. And it probably wasn't actually the best diet for, for very young children to be on long-term anyway, because it did result in lower growth rates, um, just because it was so extreme, right? But now, um, because it's less restrictive, and particularly with exogenous ketones, I think that that really needs to be looked at as something that is a better intervention with far less side effects and, and far less adverse effects. Yeah, and just sort of taking a sidestep out of there, last year's most popular um, well, clinical article, the, the review of the type 1 grit cohort, you know, that, that's showing well-growing young, young people on a low-carbohydrate diet, but again, more, more protein. Absolutely, sufficient protein, and then probably you know less restrictive for carbohydrate as well. But particularly the the protein thing is is critical, and you know we still see it now. You still see it. I'm sure you see it a lot. We see it a lot. People are still very scared of protein if they're doing a low carb or ketogenic diet, and it's this whole idea of you know protein is insulinergic. You're going to have an insulin response to it. Um, it's going to be gluconeogenic, all this kind of stuff. But pe people really forget that, well, mechanistically, that that's not the case anyway, right? We know that gluconeogenesis is demand-driven, not supply-driven. So if you're having a high level of protein, but you can utilize that effectively, it's not necessarily going to promote excessive levels of gluconeogenesis. Any gluconeogenesis, that creation of glucose that occurs, is is probably a good thing for you at that level, Right. Um, but also in terms of the insulin effect, we consistently see that the area under the curve for insulin overall is pretty low when someone's on a high protein, low carb diet. And so although of course insulin has a transient, uh, sorry, protein has a transient insulinergic effect, on balance it's probably not that big a deal. And people need to look then at, well, what's the functional outcome of eating more protein? The functional outcome is you'll probably hold more muscle, you'll probably lose more body fat, you'll have a higher thermic effect of food and you'll probably be more satiated. Plus you'll feel better. So. <laughs> yeah, I guess that that's where I'm seeing a good influence from, from the carnival, carnival community, not the ones that are, you know, a, a broccoli is going to kill you and poison you, but <laughs> the, the, the balance of, of, of conversation in that community is, is around this um, demand sort of in, induced gluconeogenesis and, and you know guys that are on an all meat diet or or supplemented with eggs and, and a few small berries and stuff you know Ted Naiman yeah. for example um you know that actually this is still a good way to stay in ketosis and that word you said satiating absolutely I mean the, the biggest thing for you know if, if people are interested in being in ketosis and I don't think it's the be all and end all but if people are interested in that then it really does come down to the restriction of carbohydrate predominantly you know the, the effects of over overeating protein with with very little other substrate 
is really a medium to long-term thing. And that comes from, from not having enough other substrate, irrespective of what it is. But how much that actually is, is probably a little bit unclear at this point. Um, and that's see sort of the, the rabbit starvation type thing. Um, but, you know, other, other people have been really important for that conversation too. And there's a lot that have come from maybe even the higher carb sphere who have, you know, cautioned against limiting protein too much. Um, and, and quite a lot of people, I think, in the more sort of paleo or primal or ancestral space. And I know you um, you chatted to one of those the other day, someone that I, I respect a lot. Yeah. No, Jamie, it was, uh, was, was, was great to have on here. Yeah. Um, and he's a good example of someone who is very pragmatic about that whole, well, you know, what I would call the carb-appropriate carb spectrum. And I hope that, you know, I'm seen in that respect as well, is that while keto and, and extreme low-carb or carnivore, you know, but carnivore in particular will work for some people, but I, I don't think it's a, a good thing to promote, you know, in a wholesale sort of way. Um, keto, on the other hand, I think is far healthier and safer for a lot, much larger amount of people. So most people could probably get away with doing keto and get pretty good results, irrespective of biology, physiology or whatever. But would it be necessary? Probably not. So there's still going to be this big spectrum there and there's going to be you know, a lot of people who thrive uh, even more on different styles of diet, whether that be paleo, primal, um, or even higher carbohydrate. I guess the thing that we see consistently is if we really pass down into the details of, of the, particularly the observational studies that have been done, they draw very different conclusions, right? You might have the pure study that draws the conclusion that, you know, higher carbohydrate is associated with increased mortality and there's really no effect of fat. Then you can look at the ERIC cohort, which um, suggests that low carb is basically going to kill you earlier and, you know, you should be more moderate and eat, and eat sort of more carbohydrate. Um, but really those studies didn't really show that most strongly. What they show most strongly is that if people are eating natural unprocessed food, then they're going to have the best mortality outcomes and that sort of trumps all other considerations, I think. Mm. And I guess you brought up James' name and that sparked a thought in my head. Last, last week, uh, New Zealand Health Minister decided that she's going to save the world by stopping our hospitals from eating meat. You know, I haven't seen any comment from you on, on that clip. Um, Mickey, she, she, she dropped her head in there. What, what have you been thinking about that? <clears throat> Yeah, I, I think I chose to to not comment on that one, which might not have been the right um, decision. But I've been so vocal lately in, in sort of getting people to to really look closely at, at what the environmental impact of various things actually is, right? And I think we, we have overblown the, the climate impact of animal agriculture, particularly in a country like New Zealand. Now, I'm certainly not an expert on it, but from what I've seen and what I've, what I've read, and this is from you know, the peer-reviewed literature, it doesn't seem as clear-cut as what people are suggesting. So if we have very small effect sizes there, if anything, from that animal agriculture, and we, we see that you know, hospital food is pretty poor in, in terms of nutrient status, right? Which may not be an issue because most people are in there for only a short amount of time. I'm, I'm trying to play devil's advocate here. Mm. People are in the hospital typically for a short amount of time. But those on longer stays, they typically do end up coming out more malnourished than they previously were. When we also consider that, you know, probably half of all Kiwis don't get enough 
of at least one or more of the essential vitamins and minerals, and that's from New Zealand government data, we begin to see a bit of a problem there. When we then look at the New Zealand Food and Nutrition Survey and see that the majority of our, although the, the biggest contributor to, to food calories in any given day is bread, which is, you know, fairly devoid of uh, a lot of nutrients as compared to, say, meat, um, we certainly begin to see a problem there of limiting possibly one of the most nutrient-dense foods that could be applied in a hospital setting. And I think that's certainly not going to help outcomes at all. Yeah, what, what sort of puzzled me was, was the, um, the quote that 49% of our greenhouse gases come from agriculture. Now, that may be correct, having had a <clears throat> chat to um, his Twitter handle's GHG guru, and his first name is Frank, and it's like Maltler or something like that. He's from UC Davis in the States. And he said yeah. that that percentage data is difficult because for such a low environmental impact country, our agriculture sector might well be the most highest contributor overall. But then that's without looking at it in a closed uh, closed loop situation. Now, obviously, dairy, you could argue, might might have a uh, not offset quite so well as as sheep and beef do. But yeah, it was it's still a bloody high number when you consider the states overall is, is like nine percent in total of agriculture and the other three percent for for um, animal agriculture. So yeah, that, that that was. I'm still puzzled, but uh, that may explain the higher number. <laughs> As far as I know, that's internal too, right? So it's internal to New Zealand, excluding um, the sort of impact of extra national travel. Um, so when we're looking at things like that, we were a relatively small country with relatively low, well, I say relatively low transport emissions compared to large countries, which have a, a pretty big transport burden to, to, you know, for freight and things like that. Um, but we also need to consider that agriculture is our biggest exporter industry certainly our biggest exporter it may not be our biggest industry i think that's tourism but you know being such an agriculture dominated country it's obviously going to have a a, a much higher loading um but i think you know the, the important thing there is to look at, at global emissions and what they really amount to uh and whether a, a lot of the rhetoric that's been played out about animal agriculture versus other things is actually correct. Now, from what I've read, I, I think that animal agriculture accounts for about 4% of global greenhouse emissions, so it's not actually that high. Um, and so a lot of the, the narrative that people are playing out around you know, how much you can do to reduce global greenhouse emissions by not eating meat, for example, is only in relation to food-based emissions, which are actually quite small compared to a lot of other things. But even if we are just looking at food-based emissions, I think there are possibly better targets anyway. If we want to look at everything, you know, including health, and look at what's going to have the biggest impact, you know, we, we throw away a huge amount of food. And I think that is, is likely to be a bigger impactor of greenhouse emissions. If we throw away upwards of 40% of usable foodstuffs, that's a huge contributor, and it's something that not a lot of people are talking about. Um, I also think that the a, a lot of the the diet based arguments, either ethically or for environmental issues, like ethically in terms of sentient lives and you know things like that, 
Um, it, it, a part of it's got to come down to virtue signaling because there is often far less attention paid to the other aspects of life that are going to contribute to wastage and are going to contribute to greenhouse emissions in a, in a big way. You know, consumerism. If, if we're buying a lot of additional product that we don't need, that all has an enormous burden when it comes to climate change. And so I think there, there really needs to be a reevaluation of, of how we live and how we present ourselves. Because if we're simply saying, well, I'm vegan, so I'm you know, a, a virtuous person, that, that really says nothing. You know, I'd like to see a lot more appraisal of everything that people are doing and how they're living because that has a much bigger role to play, I think. Yeah, absolutely. And, and you know, if you're not wearing an animal product um, and, and wool, for example, I'm not sure why there's such an issue with wool, but, you know, if you're wearing a, a synthetic product, where, where does that come from and, and where does it end up? And, and you said about the food, um, I think if it goes into landfill, it's, it's an horrific um, emitter because it uh, the way it decomposes isn't the same as if you've got it in a compost and returning it to the soil. Well, that's right. I mean, the, the methane emissions are, are pretty high from landfill. <laughs> An interesting point as well is, and this is something that's only I, I've only become aware of recently, and I thought it was bullshit when I first heard it. Actually, is that there are a huge amount more ruminants in North America, for example, than uh, previous to colonization than there are now. There were more bison roaming wild than there were than there are cows now. Mm. Yeah. We're simply looking at I don't I don't know if that's is that correct. I mean that's, I've heard it. And I think it was um, backed up by some research, but yeah, no, I, I think that's what Peter Bellis did got across in our podcast. Even though um, his audio wasn't great, but yeah, I think that was one of, one of the issues that he raised that, uh, from a ruminant research perspective. That hey, you know, we've got some cows now and, and not. Not as many bison, but gee, prior to the um, Western settlement of, of America, there was bison everywhere. Yeah. yeah, and that may not be a great argument eco-wise because people would say, oh, "Well, there's still too many ruminants." But I think we also haven't necessarily taken into account the the full impact of you know carbon sequestration and, and pasture either. And I think uh, from, from what I understand, there's a lot more research that's going to come out on that in the next year or so. There's a, a lot of researchers who are sort of nearing publishing um, pretty interesting data on that. I know um, the guys, at, it was UC Davis, wasn't it, who yeah. Yeah, suggested that um, pasture had a better carbon sequestering effect in more arid climates, though. Mm. Yeah, and that sort of falls in line with the work of... Um Savior Institute and, and is it Joel Salatin, something like that? Yeah. 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 Mate, you, you, you talked about living a more complete life rather than just signaling your, your virtue. Is that the, the deal with your new book, basically, around more, more considered life living? Yeah, I think so. I mean, I, I, I had had the, this idea of, well, I've, I've always had this idea that there is a, well, we all hold a particular credo, but we often don't really define it very well. So our credo is really our, our value set. It's our set of our, our core ethos that we live life by. And so I had been throwing around ideas for this for a long, long time. And um, it wasn't until I finished my PhD that I, I had 
stuff that I've been jotting down over the years. And I thought, well, there's, um, I think there's some interesting stuff here, but it was really just an exercise in, in getting it out, you know, um, a catharsis or almost of just getting that out on paper and um, releasing it and seeing what, what happened and whether people enjoyed it or not. And I think they have. But yeah, really the idea of that is that there are certain key, key virtues, I think, that are really important to, to, to live a good life. And unless we actually put those down, unless we actually understand what our core values are, it's very difficult to live congruent to that because we'll find we'll, we'll make decisions reactively and then we'll, those decisions won't necessarily be congruent with our ethos. So unless we actually define those a little bit more, it's very difficult to continue going on and living that. Um, but in, in writing that book, initially it was a pretty small, it was almost like a pamphlet. And then I realized that there was little that people could actually do to apply it. It was, it was probably interesting. I hope it was interesting for some people. It might've been inspirational, but I, I think it's really important to make things applicable as well. So I went on and uh, did a sort of second part to the book which was really about how we can begin to connect to that better uh, through the, the elements of things like mindfulness and gratitude um, and really ways that we can begin to not just have that as our foundation, but also begin to live with a bit more creativity and, and passion and purpose in our life as well. Mm, no, that, that's really good. So what, what was the process for, for this like? Is it, was it like what you've been doing with the, the sort of carb appropriate stuff where you compounding the research or, or like you said, you had some bits of paper that you brought together. How, how did that sort of equate into a first a pamphlet sized book and then a, a full on book? It was really, um, it was the complete opposite actually, because so much of what I do in the scientific realm is it's sort of meeting in the middle of what we've observed to be true in clinical practice and then what the research tells us. And obviously our research, I think, fits in the middle a little bit because it's very much translational. So we're trying to, well, we're basically demonstrating what has been observed in clinical practice, backing that up with research, and then hope, hopefully having that feedback into a bit more application for clinicians as well. So it's really that trans translational research sort of space. But for this, I actually didn't want to get mired in research at all because while I think a lot of the research in and psychology in particular is, is really interesting. I also think it can be limiting sometimes because you begin to, you begin to frame things within particular ideologies or particular frameworks. You know, you feel like you basically have to have these things adhere to a particular psychological framework or theorem. And I didn't want to have that. So instead I basically just thought, well, what, what do I think? And I, you know, jotted these down years ago. What do I think are some of the key ethos points that most people could relate to. And if they're beginning to live congruent with that, they'll probably have a pretty good life, right? Um, these are things like honesty, humility, um, you know, loyalty, and then moving through into how we can actually begin to, to live more creatively as well in whatever pursuit we, we happen to gravitate towards. Um, one of the foundational things that I've really been thinking about the last couple of years. I'm actually speaking about this at the Well-Fed Conference in um, October, is the idea that we often have as a goal health, right? People have health as a goal, and they have all the steps that they want to put in place to achieve health. But health isn't a goal, right? It's not a, it's not a goal that's worth 
aspiring to, I don't think, because really health is a foundation, right? So we can put in place all those things. Like, let's put it this way. If you put in, in place all the things that we would, you know, you and I would probably consider to be the key points of being healthy. So you're exercising, you're doing resistance training, you're doing, you know, you're going for a walk, you're getting enough sun, you're sleeping well, you're being mindful, all this kind of stuff. You're basically then at a point where you're healthy, but is that going to lead to comfort, satisfaction, happiness? Probably not, because what does it actually mean? Mm, To to me, health means... Yeah, to, to me, health means that you've then got the foundation to do exciting, inspiring shit. So really, health is what allows us to then exercise creativity, passion, and purpose, right? And people need to begin, or what I hope people can begin to do, is to recognize that and then have some tools to actually figure out, well, what, what do I actually want to be aspiring towards? And health will help me achieve that. Because if I'm healthy, I'll have more energy, I'll have more, you know, better cognition, I'll have more mental clarity, I'll have the physical wherewithal as well to be able to do these amazing things that I want to do. But if I don't know what those things are, what's the point of being healthy? Yeah, and I guess that's probably why so many people have such a hang up about their health is because there's there's no winning for health. There's, there's just doing for health. <laughs> Exactly. And, and that's also why I think it can be very difficult for people to stick to because they, they know they should be healthy. And I don't agree with the word should in a lot of contexts, but they know they should be healthy because it's going to lead to better quality of life. It's going to lead to better length of life. It's, it's things that are actually quite abstract in terms of people's day-to-day connection and recognition. But if they begin to then think about, well, what's my big why and what are my key ethos and values points and what do I really enjoy doing and how would I like to be more creative? How would I like to, you know, live a more sort of purposeful life? Then they've got a, a, a set of, you know, a big why and a set of sub whys and they can begin to see very clearly, well, shit, if, if I'm healthier, these things are going to be that much better. You know, I'm going to be so much more effective at doing these things. And so I think having that provides a better continuum so people can actually stick to things more effectively. Yeah, I guess that's one of the advantages of working in the the uh, area that we both do. Is it's right in front of your face of of what can can happen if it's it's disregarded. <laughs> exactly. Well, and that that's a challenging thing for all of us. I think you know we can we can fall off of our own purpose, and then once we do that, it's very easy to also fall off those things that are, are most conducive to our health. And then the only thing that we have left is seeking transient states of ecstasy. Mm. And we do that by grabbing some sugar or we do that by just sitting out, sitting down and watching, not that I don't do this, but sitting down and watching hours and hours of television or, you know, being on a phone, playing games or scrolling social media or whatever it happens to be. Um, Not that any of those things are bad, but if they're only used as distraction or for that transient state of ecstasy, rather than being a lot more mindful and aware of them, then I think that's really, really limiting. So, you know, one of the things I talk about in the book a lot is um, how, and and a lot of people talk about this, this is nothing novel, but about how we can, I guess, use media and social media and, you know, traditional media more effectively uh, without it becoming 
something that defines our self-identity because I think that, again, is, is really limiting. Yeah, just on that, what do you think about this move to remove likes and remove followers? Do you, I, I, I see it as a positive, but then I also see it as the business decision um, to get people to pay, pay more for their advertising and reach. <laughs> yeah, possibly. I think, yeah, I, I'm not sure. I, I'm probably similar to you in that I think that the pro, of course, is that when people don't have that imperative to be looking you know, at, at likes all the time, then it probably helps to disengage slightly because there's not the same degree of gamification. You know, there's not going to be that same um, connection to the the result. On the other hand, as a credibility indicator, I think we all probably will see some value in going onto, you know, someone's social media profile and seeing that they have, you know, a huge amount of followers or likes or whatever. There is some degree of credibility indication there. On the other hand, is that credibility indicator credibility indication valid because you know, we would probably both agree that a lot of the most credible people are not necessarily the most followed. In, in fact, you know, some of the most followed people in health are, I would say, very incredible. Mm. And I don't mean incredible, I mean incredible. Um, and so I think it's, it's an interesting one, but I mean, I certainly... I can certainly find like anyone else that I, I, I can become habituated to to scrolling and to placing too much, you know, of my own um, self-worth and value on, on what's happening in social media. And so I, I actively disengage, you know, and I do that by not having um, social media apps on my phone. I do it by having a newsfeed eradicator for Facebook on my computer so I don't see a newsfeed. So all I'm basically seeing is my notifications. Um, and I've also started using reading mode on my computer as well. Uh, sorry, on my phone as well. So everything's basically in grayscale instead of colored. And the effect that's had is actually quite pronounced because a lot of the, the coloring and apps and the notifications and things is designed to be very stimulating for you and to encourage engagement. Yeah, and um, I shared it a wee while back. There's a, there's a great blog post, I think Tim Ferriss shared it on his Bible Friday about all the sort of hacks of missing, missing your, um, your home screen around and, and putting things deep into files so that, I don't know, it's just, it's just enough clicks and enough, and, and I've got, um, you know, time on, on, on my apps so that it, it shows up and you're like, hey, mate, you've just wasted 15 minutes. <laughs> um, yeah, yeah it, 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 there's plenty of tools out there. Um, but I, I guess it speaks to the fact that we are all addicts and, and that we just really want to escape ourselves all the time. And then you go back to that, that meditation and mindfulness. Part of that is actually um, being with yourself. And, and if we've got, you know, that, that chocolate biscuit over there or that, you know, even, even when it comes to coffee, you know, at work, at downtime, oh, I don't want to do this right now. I'll go grab a cup of coffee or, or a cup of tea or whatever, you know. Where, yeah. where, does, where does this sort of philosophical aspect come out for you to deny your urges and, and that search for ecstasy to, to really be present in, in, in who you are? Yeah, that, that's a really good question. And I think it comes less, I think willpower is important, don't get me wrong. And I think that's where a lot of people, you know, don't quite achieve where they could because they think that willpower is not important. If they do all these other things, then willpower is not necessary. I think it is. 
And I think we do need to create structures that help us to, to adhere to what we know is best for our health. But taking a step back, I also think that mindfulness is an interesting one because I think if we're practicing mindfulness in some way, whether it be through meditation or we're having some type of mindful activity in the day, I think that really does help us to, to see more clearly where we might be about to react mm. to something, whether that be to grab something that we're habituated to or whether that's a reaction that we have, you know, based on our self-limiting stuff. So that could be a reaction um, to, to any sort of stimuli, whether that be an interpersonal relationship or whatever. We can see that much, much more clearly in the moment and we have an opportunity there to respond instead of to react. But as part of that as well, I think one of the things that a lot of people miss is that mindfulness is often just a proxy for, for taking a break as well. You know, taking a break and stopping and not having anything that needs to fill that time. Of course, there is something filling that time. It's sitting in silence. But often just stopping and, and not doing anything distractive in particular has, I think, a lot of the same effect. And when we do that, rather than jumping from thing to thing, you know, for example, I've been lately uh, limiting my work hours to about seven hours a day because I, I find that that's my most productive length of time. If I work past that, I find that I'm just, just finding things to do. And while I might be getting other things done, there, there's not then a lot of time left to, to do other things outside of what I do for work. Now, I love what I do for work, but I also like other stuff. And when I stop and have that fairly clear block there and basically say, well, I'm not going to work past this time, that can be quite disconcerting at times. You get a bit of, a bit of anxiety. It's like, oh, I should be doing a bit more. Once I force myself to stop, so this is where the, the structures come in, right? You've got a little guideline there. You've got to stop at this particular time. There's then this choice conundrum. What am I going to do? Right. And, and the easy thing to do would be, oh, I could go grab a chocolate bar. I could sit in front of the television. I could get on my phone and scroll social media. But if we think about and, and actually recognize, maybe write them down somewhere, some of the things that we haven't been doing because we supposedly haven't had enough time, we actually realize that we've actually got a lot of time. So it could be playing the guitar or, you know, going for a walk with the dog. Oh, I didn't have enough time. Yeah, you did but you filled it up with other shit, right, first. And often the things that we really want to do within those break times, they don't take a lot of time either. It's really just about having some time to enjoy. And so that's why one of the things I quite often get my clients to do is to write down, say, five things that they haven't supposedly had time to do that they really love doing and a really big piece of paper and chuck it up on a wall somewhere. So every time that they're thinking, oh, what am I going to do? Because they're feeling a little bit anxious. Look at that and, and do one of those things instead of just falling back onto the defaults, which are just distractive things. Where do you think this anxiety is coming from? If, if we go back to that ancestral thing, where do you think the anxiety to, to sit and do nothing and be alone, I guess being alone is, is something that we're probably not too used to because that, was, that meant you're in big trouble. But where do you think that, um, oh, I've got nothing to do? Oh, what am I? What am I going to do? I'll find something to do. Where do you think that comes from? I I don't know exactly, but I I would hazard a guess that it is something that is probably 
there probably is some primal basis for it, but I think that it's really been overexpressed in our modern society. I think that's been shown, I'd have to double check, but I think that's been shown in comparisons of hunter-gatherer societies to modern societies. There's off, often not that same prevalence and incidence of depression, anxiety, and depression, anxiety is pretty much considered the same disorder now in, in a lot of contexts. So there's not that same prevalence for that. And I think so much of it is built into our, I mean, it's been built in for a long time, but I think it very much built is built into this whole idea of the work ethic mm. and have a period of life in, in which we almost exclusively work with very short times proscribed for, for doing things that are supposedly fun and outside of work. And that, that dichotomy is interesting too, because, you know, while, while as I, I don't want to, you know, look at the hunter gatherer ideal as being this fantastical thing, because we all know it's not. But if, if we look at the things that need to be done, there are things that need to be done, but they're not necessarily work per se, they're things that need to be done. And, you know, the amount of working hours that a, a lot of people in hunter gatherer societies do in terms of the need to be done for survival is a lot lower than in the modern world so we work longer and we work in a more stress intensive way because our, our stress is maybe not it doesn't peak as high necessarily but it's far more consistent and it's also not being exercised either like literally exercised because if you're in a natural environment where something needs to be done you're getting it done physically Whereas now, more often than not, unless we have a physical job, a lot of the most stressful and particularly psycho-emotionally stressful things, we're in stillness. So we're still, we're sedentary, but we're filled with these stress hormones. And so I think we have a lot of the residual that's going on as well. We have a lot of residual stress that we never quite you know, work out correctly. Um, and then we've got all these imperatives as well to, to be more, do more, make more money, buy more things. Um, and really so much of that has, has been finely tuned by, by people uh, who, who have done amazing work in getting us to become habituated to things. I mean, advertising is amazing, right? Yeah, I can, I can definitely speak to the, um, the, the not exercising the stress, you know, times where I, I don't exercise, uh, I just begin to get this build up and then days where I get up, I, I do Wim Hof, which gets you into this crazy sympathetic state and then parasympathetic straight away and then do do a workout, you know, cold shower again, shocking the system and then do it do a day. You know, the day flies by and I've got a smile on my face, I feel amazing, but that, that angst that can build if, if I'm sedentary and, and as I say over the weekend, you know, we we're built to be physical and mobile machines. Um I walked around the bush and with with a pack on my back, and you know, didn't manage to see an animal. But you know, that's not necessarily the purpose of it. But that freedom, sunshine, rain, sleep, uh, bush, that smell of dirt, you know, it's it's amazing what it does to itself. Yeah, I mean, it's multifactorial, right? I, I think there's just been a study published which showed that the the effect of walking around in the bush is exponentially more effective than just walking around on grass as well. There's, there's so many factors to it, but getting out amongst nature in that way, um, you know, is, 
I guess, one of the most beneficial beneficial things we could do. And unfortunately, I don't do that enough. Um, but that's certainly a call to action to get out and, and do that a lot more. Yeah, I, I, that's, you know, there's that song, we don't know how lucky we are in New Zealand, that even within cities, there's these fantastic green belts, you know, even even Auckland City, it's not far to get to Mount Eden or, or Mount Roskill or, or the beach. You know, what, what, a, what a fantastic place. And, and I guess that's why so many of us are crammed, crammed into that, that spot of the country. Um, yeah, and I think there's, you know, there's environments within urban environments in a lot of places. You know, any major city in the world that I've lived in, there are amazing parks and, you know, if you just take just a few minutes to go in there, you can see such amazing things. You know, we've been spending quite a bit of time walking through the, the domain lately because we live uh, close to there. And the, the fungi that are around at the moment, mm. it's incredible, right? And so it's, it's not only relaxing and it's a nice environment. You, like you say, you smell the dirt, you smell the trees, you know, you've got the sort of fresh air there. Um, all the oxygen coming off the trees, all those things. But you're also seeing amazing, exciting things as well that are quite different to what we're usually habituated to. And I think that's a massive part of it. Yeah, it's quite amazing um, the amount of people that don't recognise that. So with the eyes, obviously, they manifest a lot of stuff, including allergies or irritants. And, you know, people, we get bouts of people come in with allergies. And I said, you know, what, what causes? You know, it's not, even, it's not even spring. And I said... Yeah, but there's, you know, there's lots of dead leaf matter around at the moment, like all, all you know, Hawke's Bay, all the fruits on the ground rotting, um, and you just go go walk anywhere. And like you say, there's, there's fungus and mushrooms everywhere. And they're like, oh, oh okay, you know, there's spores in the air. And, <laughs> and you know, and now, now the pine's starting to, to turn the, the drains yellow and things like that. But, you know, going back to that hunting, I saw some yellow poos up there and weren't sure if it was pigs or, or possums leaving these these um, pollen-stained poos everywhere. But, yeah, you know, <laughs> it's, it's just yeah. these small interconnected things with, with nature that, you know, unless you really take a moment, like I say, get out that five minutes outside and go to the park, you, don't, you just live, live a life of, of blinkers. Yeah, you know, I wonder if a lot of, you know, or at least some of our modern health conditions result from just not simply not being out and habituated to the environment anymore, you know. I noticed a, a weird thing. It was probably a year or so ago. For the first time in my life, I got chillblains right on my feet. Oh, yeah. And I had never thought that I would get chillblains, but I sort of I tried to think about why would I get these now? And what I realized is a couple of things. I'd been out outdoors less than I previously had, but I'd also been, um, I was doing a bit of a bit of contract work at the time. I was doing some work with a, um, a company, so I was very much in a corporate environment. And for the first time in years, I was habitually wearing shoes because I don't usually wear shoes. And so I was out in, you know, whenever I'd go outside or go to work or whatever, I was in shoes a lot. And I had a feeling that perhaps wearing shoes, you know, all that time and being in climate controlled environments was changing how my particularly micromusculature was aiding my vascular system and things like that. And so when that contract finished, I went back to not wearing shoes anymore and I was walking around in the cold outside, you know, barefoot. I used to, when I lived in Canada, I used to walk to work in the snow with, and bare, you know, without shoes on and all sorts and never got chillblains. And, and but they went away is the short end of that long story. And, and I'm exposing myself to fairly extreme temperatures 
But I really think that it wasn't the, the cold temperatures that were causing the chillblains. It was that I wasn't habituated to being able to respond to normal temperature variation because I'd become trapped in this climate-controlled environment and wearing shoes. Yeah, and you've just got to look at extreme allergies as well. Going back to that, the, the way you cure extreme allergies is, is exposure therapy. And, <laughs> yeah. and um, I, I, I was a horrific hay fever sufferer. And um, at Christchurch in the tannery, there's a fantastic apothecary there. And she said, try this tea, you know, drink it a few times and it'll be sweet. And I was good for a good few, two years. And then, yeah, then I had a little bit of a relapse. And that was around the same time that I went low carb and, and fixed some leaky gut and, and haven't been bad ever since. So, again, you know, exposure, exposure therapy. And going back to what you said, that maybe we're not exposed to these environmental things like like the spores like the pollen and we just get hit with it yeah. the moment we go outside to go to our car and then we end up sneezing for the rest of the day yeah and i think there's a fine line between you know you know i guess living a spartan existence we are really <laughs> all the time but I, I do think that there is some role for resilience you know, for, for exposing yourself to cold and then to, you know, exposing yourself to, to ex- more extreme heat, um, you know, to exposing yourself to bumps and bruises. You know, you, you obviously played footy at a high level and I think all of us growing up played footy and you're pretty resilient when it comes to bumps and bruises and then you get a bit older and you stop doing that and um, you get a little knock to the shin and it seems like the, the world's... <laughs> <laughs> you know, that's one of the reasons I still love uh, wrestling and doing jiu-jitsu is because you, you take you're getting constant low-grade knocks. And I think it helps just to be more resilient. You're, you're better suited to the world out there because if you get a little knock, it doesn't matter. Yeah, and, and coming coming down this barrier yesterday, that was one of the things I just kept saying. To, I actually was talking to myself. That's what happens when you go in the bush. But uh, out loud saying, you could do this. You know, it's just going to be hard for a little bit. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Um, you said with, with the book, you didn't, you didn't want to take a psychological dogma to it. What about philosophies? Are you, are you influenced by, by many philosophies going going into writing something like that? Yeah, um, I wrote actually in the... I wrote for the first time, I think, not everything, but fairly completely, in a more complete way than I ever had anyway, about my my story, basically, of, of coming up. And I spoke about a, a number of things within that, um, you know, from fairly extreme, you know, drug use through to, you know, being on the fringes of the criminal underworld and all sorts of things, which people hadn't realized about me. Um, you know, having some some pretty serious mental health stuff with bipolar disorder and, and all sorts, but also within that, what, what my sort of philosophical and spiritual basis was. And really it came from a number, number of things. My mum my was a um, very devout Christian, but she was very non-conversional. So she didn't, you know, force that on us whatsoever. In fact, she, um, as when I was very young, bought me books on all sorts of different philosophies, mostly Eastern philosophy, so Vedantic and, um, you know, Buddhist philosophy and Hindu philosophy and all sorts. Um, my old man was a marathon runner, but through that he got into yoga because he thought it looked like a good way to stretch. And this is back in the very early 1980s, right? So it was a long time ago. So when I was very young, um, I would see my dad doing yoga and I'd start to do that with him. So this is from about the age of three. Um, and then in conjunction with the, the books that my mum got me on um, Eastern philosophy, I, I started 
getting into mindful activities and meditation when I was very young. Um, and then when I, as I got older, I, I sort of started almost moving back to the West a bit more and um, looked a lot at Aristotelian uh, philosophy and, you know, he's sort of on the fringes of Stoicism, but he, he wouldn't be considered a Stoic per se, but also at Stoicism, um, because I think that that's something I really gravitated towards. And so really it was a combination of, you know, Eastern philosophy, particularly Buddhist thought and, um, and Stoicism, I'd say, comes through a lot in the, in the book. And, and so where do those two converge and where do the two diverge? I think they converge more than they diverge. Um, I, I think, you know, obviously with, with Buddhism, the fundamental idea is that there, there is suffering and that suffering is um, basically comes from our, our, our human existence. You know, our human existence will entail suffering and the way that we, or, you know, and suffering is a, is a very imprecise way of, saying that it's more that discontentment, you know, dissatisfaction that people always experience. That's part of the human condition, but we can recognize it. And through, I'm summarizing here pretty liberally, but (laughs) we can basically recognize that that suffering and all other things in the human condition arise and fall, right? So it is just part of the journey and we can learn to basically observe that. With Stoicism, of course, the idea is that, you know, it can really be summarized in many respects into that famous quote, you know, what, what stands in the way becomes the way. It's recognizing that the, the journey is and that these things that come up are, are part of that process. And if we understand that, we can basically, I sort of take that as meaning that we can be very resilient because we can see that these things that arise that might be seen as extraordinary threats are in fact extraordinary challenges and in overcoming those challenges we can aspire to to that which is greater i think there's a pretty nice middle ground between those as well because they're, they're really saying the same thing in in different ways i guess buddhism is, is less aspirational in some ways because it's less aspirational in the human context but in many other ways it's basically the same is that the there is a middle a middle path, and that path is is life, right? There's not necessarily a particular destination you're going to get to, and suddenly everything's going to be fantastic. The the journey is the way, and that thing I think that that concept comes through um, both Buddhism and other Eastern philosophies, and those very introspective philosophies of of the West. You know, it's also very heavily influenced by by mysticism in all its forms. You know, whether that be from I studied with. Sufis in the um, Islamic tradition when I lived in Canada through to, you know, Buddhism itself is a very mystical religion. Um, you know, I've taken a lot of inspiration from uh, the Discalced Carmelites and Catholicism and other mystical sects. And basically they're fine. They're, they're, the, the whole idea of mysticism is that it's basically seeking that which is more through personal experience, right? It's not putting an ideology out there and it's not following something in order to give you a guiding light. It's really, if anything, using those things as guidelines by which you can experience um, things yourself. Yeah. And bringing all that together, you make me think of something, something that I guess you'd call it modern mysticism. You know, people always shouting out the quote that that life doesn't happen to you. It happens for you. And and that goes along that these things 
help help you shape you grow you yeah, and, and take you forward yeah definitely nice. and you know if, if people can begin to to really really connect to that correctly then um life be- it ends up being a far happier place <laughs> you know yeah, because if we're constantly looking for that next or the you know the next thing over the next hill the, the next goal the next achievement um and never really just being in it i know this is tried i know it's contrived everyone says this but it's very much true you know if we don't have those moments of of reflection and 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 connection to the now then um what's it all worth nice and so how do you how do you feel about your you know what, what are we up to now 20 years of commit commitment to to this this course that you've you've taken in, in the understanding how the human now not, not just nutritional system works but the human body and, and extension on that how it's mind and all those things interact you know how do you feel that your commitment to that is is you know being, being a journey or being prospered or whatever yeah it's a it's a good question because it has very much been a journey and you know now this sort of 22 years into practice now and having had, I think, the, you know, the, the opportunity to, to be involved in the research and to, to help push the boundaries a little bit, um, I, I'm really grateful for that. But I also feel as if I, I've just learned to learn now. And so the, the journey keeps going, you know, because at this point, I, I don't feel as if I've made any groundbreaking discoveries or that. Um, or that the journey is even close to being over. You know, I guess a lot of people when they achieve, you know, they achieve a degree or a master's degree or a doctoral degree or whatever it happens to be, they kind of feel like, well, I, I've, I've got this now. I'm some sort of expert. And I, I've never felt that way at all because the more you learn, the more you understand that there is so much more to learn and there's never going to be an end to that. And so that that's what's really... I think started to formulate a lot of of things that I did throughout my time in practice, particularly in the mind body area and in bringing um, a lot of those mindfulness based concepts into clinical practice in association with movement and, and nutrition and things like that, really beginning to see that we're at an interesting time. And I think that if we can, start to encourage people to see that that health journey as being the beginning of something more in which people can realize, you know, a lot more about life in general, not just about the health of the human body, then I think that's a really, really exciting time to be, you know? So I think a lot of my work in the future is going to be really tied up with that mind body area of research. um, But also looking at things that can really help to deepen the human experience and that can come from all sorts of things from you know our our burgeoning knowledge of mental health and how we we look at that in a really weird way i think um through to things like psychedelics and and other things that can really help us to to have epiphanies that are groundbreaking mm. and i guess an, another thing that you know we, and i always try to remind myself when i'm going through something hard or difficult what's it like having done hard and difficult things and challenging things and uncomfortable things um to know that it's all going to be worth it 
or, or is it still in the moment difficult to put that to one side that you're doing this? I guess it, it speaks to you know why you're doing something and and, and what and why that that's an important thing and why meaning is an important thing to to be able to persevere with something. How do you how do you feel about that looking back? And looking that, forward, I guess. <laughs> that's a that's a very insightful question. I, I think that I don't know, I'm in two minds because I think some of the things that I've, you know, achieved in inverted commas, some of those I perhaps haven't I don't feel as if the the achievement was as as good as it could have been, not for anyone else, but for me, you know, because I think when we look back at thing, a lot of the things we did when we were younger, you know, I'm thinking about sporting achievements and maybe things I've done in business and whatnot. You understand that you've learned so much in the intervening times that if you did go back, you would do it a whole lot differently. You know, you'd do it better, right? Cause you've learned so much, but that's okay because you know, we are in a different position now. So you can't ever have sort of any, judgment on the person you previously were um whereas now it's an interesting one because you know a lot of the things that that are done now do do seem very much just part of a process and so i think there's two aspects to that the positive is that if you just see it as part of a process then you're not getting too far above yourself and thinking well i'm awesome because i've achieved this particular thing you know and, and letting the ego sort of run riot on the other hand it can be a little bit self-limiting as well because I think there is it is important to take stock and to to fully appreciate what you've done and enjoy it, you know, enjoy your achievements and successes for whatever they are. And that's probably an area that I'm not very good at and um, the people around me try and tell me sometimes to, to stop, um, take my own advice, be a bit more mindful and maybe enjoy my, enjoy the achievements a little bit more. <laughs> yeah, I was listening to a Tim Ferriss podcast yesterday and today and, and what he, he he was trying to get this guy to tell him what he's proud of and then the guy sort of you know straight away brought up the the comment that he's always done things surrounded by people better than him so he never feels like he's done anything <laughs> and it's just that, yeah. it's just we're, we're always our worst critic and, and, and it's and it's tough and it's you know even you know moving back from australia that everything again is like starting again and starting again and then as the weeks go by you kind of go oh you know, like for our home, it's like the sustain look like home again. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it, it is so important, I think, to recognise the the value and the expertise that everyone, and yourself included, but that everyone has. You know, when I um, have taught at universities and colleges, I, I've I've always found it really interesting that a lot of teachers put themselves on a pedestal, and it's it becomes hyper hierarchical. Mm-hmm. Whereas I always had the approach that, you know, I'm, of course I'm going to know a lot more about a certain thing or a certain set of things than my students, but they're going to know a huge amount about other things. And even within that area, there are going to be not just a few, but many things that they know or understand better than I do, you know, even within my areas of expertise. So I think within that, we can all look at this this whole thing that we're doing in life as being like a co-learning environment. And and that makes it a heck of a lot more fun because if we actually want to achieve and want to to do extraordinary things, why wouldn't we want to learn more and understand more and grow and evolve? You know, if we don't, if we think, well, I'm, I'm awesome and I'm going to keep my knowledge to myself and I'm going to also 
inflate it to be more than it actually is for ego purposes, that's just completely limiting because you're never going to then progress as much as you could and you're going to be a dick. <laughs> yeah, that's what I'm loving about uh, my, new, my new job is for three people with vast mate, um, arrays of experience in, in different categories and it's so cool to be bouncing ideas off that. Yeah. Um, and then I've sort of, you know, from tapping into this new nutritional stuff and, and coming across um, people like Nina Teicholz and um, oh, Case Against Sugar, what's his name? Uh, his name escapes me. Anyway, what I what I who, sort of, who, who are you talking about? The guy that wrote Case Against oh, Sugar. Um, <laughs> journalist. Anyway, no, not Gary Torbs. Yes, jeez, oh, <laughs> say <a> he <head> injury. <laughs> Need more lines, man. <laughs> yeah. But the the importance of of history and 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 that I guess goes a lot with what you talk about of talking to the research what what do we know or think we know at the moment and where has that come from and i almost think that from a science degree you know maybe there should be some compulsory history 101 or, or something like that um do you do you find that taking a historical perspective has enhanced your understanding or enhanced the lens of which you you observe things yeah, I think so. Um, I, I really do. I think that it lends a lot of pragmatism. And, you know, what I immediately thought of when you asked that question was, if I look at what I learned in my first undergrad at nutrition class, it feels very much as if nutrition suddenly started in the 1970s, right? And then it's this this massive uptick of, well, what do we, what do we understand about nutrition? And, you know, doing all this research and trying to figure things out and have so much of that be tempered by this, you know, slow burn since, say, you know, the early 1900s, particularly the 1930s, when nutrition really started to grow as a science. But then it took off, you know, from the 50s, 60s, 70s. And um, it, it's a fairly new area. But what seemed to be missing from a, a lot of that discussion was in the absence of having a clear understanding from a variety of research, whether it be case evidence, whether it be observational, whether it be randomized controlled trials and the compendium of all that, and the absence of having any clear answer, what should we do? Hmm. I think what we should probably do is look at what people have done over the longest period of time. You know, I think that's where the ancestral side of things is really valuable for our understanding of nutrition. Unfortunately, people get really tied up in silly debates. You know, they say, oh, well, paleo is rubbish because there was no one paleo diet. Like, yeah, but you could say the same about the Mediterranean diet, which everyone promotes or, you know, most Orthodox people promote as being the best diet. There's no one Mediterranean diet. There's a huge amount of variation of, you know, free living populations in, in relatively ancestral states around the Mediterranean. But that's not the point. The point is it's a compendium of foods that works for people. Now, I don't care if you're doing high-carb paleo or low-carb paleo because at the end of the day, it's probably going to be effective because it's natural unprocessed food. And so I think, you know, having an understanding of, of more than just your specific area quite often gives a, a lot more pragmatism where you sort of look for answers in unexpected places that can be really valuable. 
And, and that's why I think sometimes having external external experts coming into a field can provide a lot of value as well. Not always, because they might just be completely balmy and they might just jump to the you know ridiculous conclusions because they've got no foundation in it. But I'm thinking about people like, you know, Grant Schofield, I think is a really good example, physiologist and psychologist who's, you know, ended up mostly in nutrition because of, you know, the, the role that that plays in public health, being a public health professor. But he looks at things differently. And that's been really important because he was one of the first really to recognize that there were these little links there um, and, and start to really promote that as a research area in our part of the world. Yeah, it's, it's, uh, I really appreciate uh, Grant as a good, good resource to have and, and lay claim to in New Zealand, that's for sure. Mate, um, this has been fantastic and, we're, and we've taken a lot of little twists and turns. Um, obviously, due to, due to your new book and, and the sort of topics it delves into, where do, where do people find the book? And, and again, if you could share where people find you to, to track along your little snippets of, of, of wisdom. Yeah, the, the easiest thing to do is just go to cliffharvey.com and then people can find all my books, uh, links out to social and all that kind of stuff. So cliffharvey.com is the place to go. Wicked. And uh, what would you like to leave us with, Cliff? That'd be great. <laughs> well, I, I appreciate you having me on again, mate, and I hope it wasn't too, too rambling and tangential today, but I guess if I'd leave it people with anything it's that um you know it's really that idea that i think we we really can pull so much more out of this life when we begin to understand that achieving health is a critical step as a foundation for then having time and energy to to do the actually important stuff which is to be creative to be passionate to be purposeful and i think if people can begin to attach to that just a little bit more then um, we'll probably have a better society overall. Legend. Thanks so much, Cliff. And we'll press stop there. And thanks again. Cheers. Thanks, buddy. Such a cool concept to finish on. And I guess it speaks to what the podcast is all about, taking responsibility for your health. And then it takes you wherever you want to go. Follow that passion, follow that creativity. And yeah, live life to the fullest. What a cool idea and a cool conversation and if you are interested in what we were talking there about exogenous ketones and the power of ketosis be sure to go to the Waikito uh, Facebook page or the Waikito website waiketoproveitnow.com check out the exogenous ketones if you're in Australia, US, Canada or East Asia you can just order them straight away from there Um, if you're not in those countries Hit me up on that Waikato Facebook page, W-A-I-K-E-T-O, or my Stag Vision Instagram, or Stag Ryan Instagram. Slide into the DMs on either one of those, and I'll be able to hook you up with the exogenous ketones. Powerful, powerful product. Also, there's the Keto Reboot there if you want to get into some fasting, assisted fasting. A little bit easier on the, on the brain and on the body, having those broths and ketones to get you through it. Um, also, the Keto Calm tea before you go to sleep is fantastic. You can also purchase the Keto Calm and Keto Broths individually, as well as Keto Cream to mix into your coffee. It's all there on the website, waiket0.proveitnow.com. And if you're in not one of those open countries, hit me up on the Facebook page, 
W-A-I-K-E-T-O, or at Stagvision on Instagram. Have a great week. As I've said, we've got things in the can, so we'll be uh, bringing in more episodes. Um, I've got up to 91 recorded, so yeah, exciting stuff. Some great episodes to come. Another fantastic episode with Cliff on this one. And if you're one of these people that's been enjoying the podcast, I see that the New Zealand audience has crept up a little bit. It's making ground on the EUS, so it's cool to grow the local audience. If you are one of those people that's tuning in heaps, if you could please, please, please leave us some feedback on iTunes, give us a rating. That helps uh, boost the audience. It's been cool seeing plenty of you people share uh, the podcast on your social media. Much appreciated. Uh, just tag me in that post and I'll share it out again. Um, expose you to my community. It's, it's always cool to, to grow and share you know, like-minded people. Um, and if you disagree as well, give us a chat. Great to have a discussion with you. Cheers.